So maybe you've made a a mess of your life, a wreck of your life. It's not by accident that you're here today because I think God wants to speak to you from his word today. You're here today because God wants to speak to you and to your heart. And I know there are people here today who've, you've made an absolute wreck of your life. It's a mess. You've made decisions that have taken you places you don't want to be. And you're wondering, how do I get back home? You've made a mess of your life. One moment, one decision changed everything. Maybe you've hit rock bottom. And if that's you today, I have some good news. For those of you who have hit rock bottom and feel like there's no hope, and the good news is this, is that grace flows downhill. I love that sentence. I've shared it with you before. I got it from an old Presbyterian pastor and seminary professor, Jack Miller, who has made a significant impact on my life and my ministry and my understanding of the gospel. Jack Miller is the guy who popularized the phrase, preach the gospel to yourself. In his book, The Heart of a Servant Leader, Jack said this, grace flows downhill. It runs down from the heights of God to the humble at the foot of the mountain. Grace also takes away fear and reveals the mighty, tender, compassionate securities of God. As you humble yourself, you will find fears fading away like the morning mist. Believe, only believe. So grace flows downhill. It comes from the glorious heights of God, the glorious heights of God most high. And that's what we'll see in our passage today. When we look at this mysterious figure in Genesis 14 named Melchizedek, we'll be reminded that God's grace flows downhill, that it moves south, that it goes down. Like water, grace flows to the lowest point. Grace flows downhill to humble sinners. Grace resides at the bottom. Grace lives at the bottom. And if you've hit rock bottom today, that's good news for you. Okay, Genesis chapter 14. Remember what we saw last week. Four thug kings captured Lot, Abram's nephew. So Abram led a 318-man army to rescue Lot. And Abram, the 75-year-old old man, was successful. And then word began to spread. Abram's victory was all over social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter. People were talking about it. And news traveled uphill, all the way to the city of Salem, where a king priest with a weird name heard about Abram's rescue of Lot. So this king priest, this mysterious man named Melchizedek, hopped in his jeep and drove down the mountain to the valley to congratulate Abram. And that's where we are in the story in Genesis chapter 14. So look at verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. After his return from the defeat of Cadalameer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, 
Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anur, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. So after the defeat of Cador, Laomor, and company, what we saw last week, two kings come out to pay Abram a visit. One of these kings we expect, it's the king of Sodom. After all, Abram just <clears throat> beat, the bully, beat up the bully who was bullying the king of Sodom. So of course we expect the king of Sodom to show up. But then we have this other king, a man named Melchizedek who shows up. And he comes bearing bread and wine. Now, why does he show up with bread and wine? Well, there is a parenthetical note about Melchizedek in verse 18. It says, he was priest of God most high. So Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which is the shortened name of Jerusalem. It's the last part of Jerusalem. But he was also a priest of God most high. In fact, in Hebrew, there is no direct object, the, the priest. It's not that Melchizedek is the priest of God. He is a priest of God, which implies that there were other priests as well. Now, of course, this brings up a lot of questions, doesn't it? Like, where are all these other priests at? And where did Melchizedek come from? Why is he a priest? Why did he become a priest? What seminary did he go to? Inquiring minds want to know. But the text does not tell us. All that we know is that he is a king, he is a priest, and I would say he's a prophet too because he pronounces a word of blessing over Abram. He says, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. As a priest, Melchizedek blesses Abram and mediates God's power and protection to him. So Mel, for short, Mel is praying that God's power rest on Abe and protect him. Notice two times Melchizedek uses the name God Most High, El Elyon in Hebrew. He is praying for the sovereign God, the creator of heaven and earth, to protect and bless Abram. But it's not just that. One Old Testament scholar argues that the title used here by Melchizedek, possessor of heaven and earth, is a metonymy or a substitute name for Yahweh as the source of life, buoyancy, help, and joy in the midst of trials, and not just the fact that he's powerful creator. So this idea that God is possessor of heaven and earth and the source of life and, and buoyancy and help and joy in the midst of trials is significant because after this blessing, the king of Sodom will come to Abram and want to link arms with him. So this blessing from God as Abram's protector and the source of his life and and what keeps him afloat in this world and his help and his joy, that prayer gets answered in real time a few verses later as Abram wants nothing to do with the worldly king of Sodom. This is like real-time protection, protecting Abram from the world, from Sodom. This blessing is answered moments later 
when the king of Sodom asks Abram if he wants to be business partners. And Abram will decline this partnership because Abram knows that life and joy come from God most high and not the worldly things that are being represented by the king of Sodom. Abram refused any connection with the king of Sodom. He returned all the spoils of war. He didn't want to keep any of them. He returned them to the king of Sodom. He didn't want to take any gifts because then people could say, well, Abe got rich because he went into business with Sodom. Abram knew what was happening in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abram wanted nothing to do with that. Abram wants nothing to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. He is servant of Yahweh, God Most High. So Abram will decline this partnership because he knows that life and joy and help and, and staying afloat in this world comes not from the things of this world, but from God most high, not the worldly things that are being represented by the king of Sodom. That's something for us to think about because we have a tendency to look at the things of the world to find satisfaction, don't we? It's the things of the world. We're not content to have Jesus and have him be all. So all of us, including myself, look to the world to be satisfied. We look to the world and all its pleasures Maybe, maybe that thing that I want will scratch this itch that I have. And we, more than ever, we see it with social media, right? People are finding their identity on who they are on social media. That becomes who they are. It's not who they are in real life. They're this other thing online. And so we long for, for likes that we get and hearts and retweets and views to find our joy, to find our satisfaction, somebody to validate who we are. But these things, number one, will only satisfy us for a season, and they will leave us empty because only Christ can satisfy. And number two, they will pull our hearts away from Jesus. The fourth century bishop, Augustine of Hippo, was right when he said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And I think there's people here today who are restless because you've been searching for something to scratch that itch, something to fill that void, something to give you hope and joy. And my friend, you will not find it until you find your rest in Jesus and in him alone. Melchizedek is praying that Abram would be satisfied in Yahweh, find rest in God most high, and find in him all life and buoyancy and joy in the midst of trials. And you know, that's not a bad prayer to pray for you, your spouse, your kids, your church. Pray something like this. Help me to find my rest in you, Jesus. Help me to be satisfied in you alone as the source of all life, buoyancy and joy in the trials that I am facing. Well, because Abram's God is the kind of God who not only hears but also answers prayers, we should not be surprised that this prayer of Melchizedek is almost answered immediately. The king of Sodom comes out to Abram wanting to be buddies and Abram gives him the stiff arm. Melchizedek's prayer that Abram would be protected from his enemies gets answered as soon as it leaves Mel's lips. This is simply Yahweh keeping his promise to Abram. Once more, God is proving to be faithful to his word, faithful to his promises. You have to love a God like that, right? Isn't this what you're looking for in God? 
A God who keeps his promises? Well, that's the kind of God Abram served. And I can tell you now that Jesus will do the exact same thing for you too, Christian. And so the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God immediately answers Melchizedek's prayer of blessing on Abram. And then after the blessing, Abram gives a tithe or a tenth of the spoils of war to Melchizedek. Why? Why does Abram offer 10% to Melchizedek? Well, it's not because Melchizedek asked for it. It's because Abram recognized him as the priest and king of his God. Abram gives as an act of worship. It's a response to Yahweh's goodness. Yahweh enabling him to rescue his nephew Lot. Yahweh forgiving him of him lying when he was in Egypt about his wife Sarai. This is a response of gratitude to the grace that he has received. And so Abram could say with Melchizedek, blessed be Yahweh God most high because he's been good to me. And so Abram responds with this act of worship by giving a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. But who was this guy, Melchizedek? He's mentioned a few times in the book of Hebrews as well as Psalm 110, but we really don't know much about him. Now, some people believe that Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Christ, that Melchizedek was actually Jesus in physical form who appeared to Abram in Genesis 14, but I don't think that's true because, one, if Melchizedek, the king of Salem, is Jesus, then Psalm 110 and the book of Hebrews wouldn't just say this about Jesus where they both say, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 in the the book of Hebrews would have just come out and said that Jesus was Melchizedek. In fact, it would be very easy for Christians reading the book of Hebrews if the preacher of Hebrews had just said, remember that guy Melchizedek in Genesis 14? That was actually Jesus, a pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus appeared to Abram, and that's why Jesus is better than the old covenant. But he doesn't say that in the book of Hebrews. Second, The preacher of the book of Hebrews actually says in Hebrews 7, 3 that Melchizedek resembles Jesus. He says, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So Melchizedek was not the pre-incarnate Christ because the preacher of Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek resembles Jesus. He doesn't have a genealogy in Jesus, a book heavy, a a genealogy in Genesis, a book heavy on genealogies. Melchizedek just comes out of nowhere and disappears from the pages of Scripture until Psalm 110. So that phrase, he is without father, mother, genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of days, is saying that Melchizedek just kind of appears on the pages of Scripture in Genesis 14, and then he's gone and he's never heard from again until he's mentioned in Psalm 110 in Hebrews. That's what it means. He's just, he came on the scene and he's gone. So who was Melchizedek then? If he wasn't the pre-incarnate Christ, who was he? Answer, he was a man, a human being, a sinner, just like you and just like me. But he was unique in that he was a priest and he was a king, the king of Salem. And he met Abraham in the valley of Shavah and blessed him. And that's about all we can say about him. I think sometimes our tendency is to think that it was just Abraham and his family who were walking with Yahweh as disciples at this time, but that's not true. 
the Lord was working in and through many other people at this time. They're just not recorded in Scripture. Like Job was probably alive at the time of Abraham, of Abram. So Job was there, and Melchizedek was one of them. In fact, we'll see it later on in Genesis when the Lord is going to destroy Sodom. And Abram says, if there's 50 righteous, if there's 40 righteous, Abram knows there are other people that follow Yahweh. So it's not just Abram and family following Yahweh as disciples. There were a lot of other people. And Melchizedek was one of them. We don't know much about him, how he became a priest, or how Abram knew that he was a priest, but the text says that he was a priest, and so we have to go with that. And what do priests do? Well, that we do know. Priests in the Old Testament represent sinners before God. So Melchizedek was this priest who was also the powerful king of Salem, and he represented sinners before the Lord. And that's about all we can say about him. We don't know how he became a priest. We don't know what seminary he went to. We don't know how Abraham knew he was a priest. But he was one because the text tells us that. And it doesn't scratch that itch of curiosity that we have either. Scripture is okay making statements and then you having to live with the mystery. If you haven't figured that out yet, you'll be very frustrated when you read your Bible. So Melchizedek is a prophet, a priest. He's also a king. He comes down from on high and he gives bread and wine to Abram. Who in the world does that remind you of? He's a, a prophet, a priest, and a king who comes from down from on high and offers bread and wine to Abram. Who do you know that comes down from a great height and gives bread and wine to sinners to sustain their faith? I don't want to give away the answer, but you do know it's the Sunday school answer, right? It's Jesus. Melchizedek was a type of Christ. He was pointing toward Jesus. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Jesus comes down to us in the bread and the cup, and we share a covenant meal with him, and he sustains our faith. Do you see here how Melchizedek is a type of Christ? Melchizedek shows us that grace flows downhill. God in his grace met Abram in the valley that day. God blessed Abram through Melchizedek, the priest. This is how God deals with sinners in the gospel. He comes down to us. He condescends to us. Think about that. How magnificently glorious and powerful and holy God is. And he condescends to us. He makes the first move to come to us. Wow. If you haven't been startled by that in a while, this is a good moment to be. If you haven't sang Amazing Grace and really been amazed, today would be a good day to read through those lyrics and be amazed that God would save a wretch like you. Because I know some of your family members are amazed that God saved a wretch like you. When you read about the covenant meal shared by Melchizedek and Abram, when you read that they ate bread and drank wine, you're supposed to think of Jesus and how in his grace he meets our spiritual needs. When Melchizedek shares a covenant meal with Abram and speaks a blessing over him, he is prefiguring Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king. 
By the way, Melchizedek's name in Hebrew means king of righteousness. It comes from the Hebrew word for king, melech, and the sedek, the word for righteousness. So he is the king of righteousness, but he's also the king of Salem, which comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. So Melchizedek is the king of righteousness, and he is the king of peace. He is a type that is obviously pointing to Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king. And what does Jesus bestow on us? Righteousness and peace. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law for us, and therefore he credits us with his righteous life so that we can stand in God's presence. We are justified. We are blameless. We have been given the righteousness that we need to be made right with God and to stand in his presence. When's the last time you thought about this, this? I, with all my mess and sin, I can stand in God's white, hot, holy presence because of Jesus. Me. Today would be a good day to just be absolutely flabbergasted that you can stand in God's presence without being obliterated by his holiness. Your king gives you his righteousness so that you can. And because we have Jesus' righteousness credited to us, we are covered with his righteousness, clothed with his righteousness, we have peace with God. Sinners like us who sin like we do who could never stand in God's presence, now have that kind of access because of God's son, Jesus. That's grace, and that's proof that grace flows downhill. Grace is God lovingly giving us what we need instead of what we deserve. It's God lavishly giving us free gifts. Really, it's just God hugging us. That's what grace is. Steve Brown said this, grace isn't a doctrine to be defended, it's a hug that needs to be experienced. Frankly, if we got that, we would lighten up and laugh more. Grace is a hug to be experienced. Grace is getting a hug when you deserve to be slapped. Grace flows down to sinners. So please understand that this passage is about Jesus, not Melchizedek. So many people make it about Melchizedek, trying to understand the mystery of who he was. I went to a guy in seminary who was this way. We, uh, there was a class called Hebrews, General Epistles, and Revelation, and we started in Hebrews, and like day one, this guy was raising his hand saying, when are we going to talk about Melchizedek? And we're like, what? Dude, we just got the syllabus. What's with this Melchizedek fascination? And like every day he'd be asking questions about Melchizedek. And eventually the prof was like, we're going to get to Hebrews eventually. Okay. We'll get to those verses. Chill out. In fact, this guy, I had another class with him. I had a Hebrew class with him. He always raised his hands and challenged the professor, always giving him grief, asking questions. What about this? What about that? You said this. And one day the professor came to a few of us and he said, I can't do anything about this. I need you guys to talk to him. And he was a single guy, 22 years, fresh out of Bible college, thought he knew everything. And four or five of us married men who were paying for our seminary and had families and working jobs. And this kid gets it all paid for. We met him by the elevator one day and kind of cornered him and kind of like mafia style, kind of let him know we're paying for this class and you're not going to interrupt it anymore. Capiche? 
I never felt more like Tony Soprano in my life. This guy was fascinated with Melchizedek. Some people are when they come to this passage. But the fundamental point here is not that we would come away knowing more about Melchizedek and solving the mystery of who this man was. The fundamental point is that we would come away more in awe of Jesus and more trusting of who he is. The point is not to know Melchizedek. The point is to know Jesus. Christian, you have a forever great, forever faithful, forever merciful high priest. Be in awe of that. And that's why Jesus is a great high priest, because he is the holy son of God, God most high. And he offers mercy and grace to people like us. You would expect him to offer lightning bolts, wouldn't you? Especially after the way you acted this week. You would expect him to offer lightning bolts. You would expect him to offer a sword and strike us down. You would expect him to obliterate us with his white-hot holiness and glory. But instead, what does he offer us? Mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. Imagine that. Again, be in awe of the God who loves and forgives you. The good news of the gospel is that there's mercy when you blow it. And there's grace when you need it most. There's mercy when you've sinned for the umpteenth time. Be in all of that, be in awe of that because some of y'all are really bad. I'm there with you. If you don't know me, that was a joke, okay? I know we're all bad here. There's grace when you feel like you just can't go on. There's mercy when you break your promises. There's grace when you are at your worst. Mercy and grace are what Jesus offers to sinners. Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we clearly deserve, rightfully deserve. And grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. We don't deserve his goodness and kindness, but he gives it anyway. The staggering thing about God's mercy is that it comes and it doesn't exact vengeance. Mercy says, it's okay. I forgive you. I won't give you what you clearly deserve. And so mercy does not work like karma, does it? Grace doesn't work like karma either. Grace doesn't do an eye for an eye. Grace comes to you when you're at your lowest, when you've got bedhead, when you've got morning breath, when you've got crust in your eyes, and you've got slobber running down your chin, and grace loves you in that moment. As Bono sings in the U2 song, Grace, grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Grace just doesn't sit on the mountaintop and tell sinners to climb up and get grace because grace can't be earned. You can't earn God's favor. You can't be good enough. Grace doesn't beckon sinners to come up. Grace moves down to broken sinners who can't move. Grace seeks the down and out and lifts them up. Jesus comes down to broken people who cannot lift themselves up. He leaves his holy mountain like Melchizedek and comes down to rescue us, to redeem us, to do for us what we could not do on our own. God most high comes down to us. And so grace is, is just Jesus. Mercy is Jesus. Grace and mercy are not theological abstract concepts. Jesus is grace. Jesus is mercy. And so the wine and the bread offered to Abram are the gospel in Old Testament form. 
It's the Lord's Supper in the Valley of Shaveh, if you will. And that same gospel, some 4,000 plus years later, says the same thing to you, Christian, that it did to Abram. The same gospel that Abram heard in that valley on that day speaks to you the same words that it spoke to Abram. And it's this, Christian, you are free and you are forgiven and you are redeemed and God is not mad at you. He will never be mad at you again because Jesus already took care of that. Christian, those of you trusting in Christ alone, you sit, you live, you abide under his love and devotion, and God now sees you as blameless. He sees you as if you've never sinned and as if you've always obeyed. Nothing and nothing can change that. And when you sin, he will forgive you always. You are his child forever. Jesus paid it all. It is finished. That's the grace that Melchizedek shared with Abram in the valley of Shaveh, the grace of God most high. Paul's all said, grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. The cliche definition of grace is unconditional love. It is a true cliche, for it is a good description of the thing. But let's go a little further, though. Grace is a love that has nothing to do with you, the beloved. It has everything and only to do with the lover. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do with my intrinsic qualities or so-called gifts, whatever they may be. It reflects a decision on the part of the giver, the one who loves, in relation to the receiver, the one who is loved, that negates any qualifications the receiver may personally hold. Grace is one-way love. Grace always goes to the wrong people, people who don't deserve it, and people who have nothing to give God in return. And God in his grace Because he's so good to sinners who mess up all the time, God in his grace can redeem our past, whatever it includes. Maybe your past involves some sort of immorality. God can redeem that. God's grace is bigger than that one night, bigger than that one mess up, bigger than that one failure that has you paralyzed, bigger than how foolish you might have been in one moment, and it still haunts us to the same. Have you ever had those moments where you had a moment where you absolutely failed and were foolish, said something stupid to someone, did something stupid, and it just haunts you to this day. We've all been there, right? I had one last night. God's grace is bigger than one decision that changed your life forever. God's grace is bigger than any of our sin. Even the most horrendous and embarrassing thing that you could do, whatever that is, whatever it is that you have done, it can be forgiven. Maybe you drug yourself in here this morning and you've been feasting on the world. Maybe you have drifted from Jesus. Maybe you've been caught in the tentacles of some sin and you just want to be free. Maybe you've partnered with Sodom, partnered with this world system, and you're ready to come back home to Jesus. Good. 
Come on home. He's been expecting you. He has a place setting with your name on it. Just humble yourself before God most high. The question is, though, will we humble ourselves? Will you humble yourself this morning? Steve Brown said, it's easier to hug a dirty kid than a stiff kid. Stiffness is the worst sin, and we thought that dirt was the problem. Jesus wants you to come to him dirty with your sin. Dirt's not the problem. Sin's not the problem. Stiffness is. Self-righteousness is. Pride is. What Jesus doesn't want is a stiff, self-righteous person who won't acknowledge that they need a Savior. The Pharisees that we read about in the Gospels were like that. Their self-righteous, prideful, rigid ways were the worst sin because they thought they had their act together. They weren't dirty like other sinners. And that's why it's easier for Jesus to hug a dirty kid than a stiff one, a self-righteous one, a prideful one. The good news is that even when you need a bath, even when you are dirty with sin, Jesus hugs you anyway. Do you feel the freedom to run into his arms, reeking of sin, hung over and looking your worst? No matter how clever you are or how good you are or how rich you are or how nice you are or how important you are, none of these make any difference because God's love is a gift. And as anyone will tell you, the whole thing about a gift is that it's free. All you have to do is reach out your hands to take it. The question this morning is, will you reach out the empty hands of faith and take the free offer of the gospel that Jesus gives you, forgiveness of his sins, forgiveness of your sins, eternal life forevermore? Grace only flows downhill. It finds you at the bottom, at your worst. Grace only works for losers. Grace only works for the down and out, for those who truly have hit rock bottom. So to all who are running away from God this morning, and to all who need peace, to all who are running on empty this morning, who have been feeding on the junk food of this world, or you've been rummaging for scraps, you've linked up with Sodom, you've totally made a mess of your life, you're having to deal with the consequences, or... To those of you who are simply pretending you're fine and you know deep down inside you're not okay. To you, Jesus says, come. Come to the gospel feast and eat and drink and be married and be satisfied. Come to the fountain this morning and drink and drink and drink and drink and drink and then come up for air every once in a while and just be like, ah, that's so good. That's worship. That's how you bless God most high, is when you drink in his grace, you drink in his grace, you just drink it all up, and occasionally you come up for air, and you're just like, ah, that's so good. That glorifies Jesus. That's how you enjoy Jesus. That's what you were made for. Eternal joy, pleasures forevermore at his right hand. But will you come today? You can be forgiven. You can be restored. You can come to Jesus right now. He welcomes you with open arms. God most high wants us. Believe it or not, he wants people like us to enjoy sweet fellowship with him. He's actually inviting you 
to join him at this feast this morning. Will you come? Rondi Lauterbach explains this sweet invitation from God in her book, Hungry, Learning to Feed Your Soul with Christ. She says this. God's invitation comes to us through the prophet Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. God is insistent, almost pushy. Come, 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 come. Four times we are invited. He must really mean it. Apparently there's no cover charge either, which is good because it's the end of the month and I'm out of money. It sounds like he's got both the food and drink covered. Maybe I should offer to bring something. But this is not a potluck. It's a feast put on by the Lord himself. He has spread his table and now he invites us to come and eat. This is the free invitation of the gospel coming right on the heels of a prophecy about the suffering servant who will atone for our sins. It's gospel. Do you hear the good news in it? God is saying, come. This meal is free because I've already paid. It's ready because I've already done all the work. You don't need to bring anything. Just come and eat. This is the come to Jesus invitation offered freely to all. It's an invitation to believe the gospel, not just for the first time, but for every day after. It's an invitation to hear his words and feed our souls. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. The guest list for this feast is unbelievably long and you and I are on it. Maybe you're coming to Jesus for the first time today to believe the good news, to believe the gospel for the first time today. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a very long time. This is a day, every day, to believe right now this good news is still true for you. God is insistent, almost pushy, because he says, come, 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 and be forgiven, find life, be at peace with God, and enjoy him forever. What in the world are you waiting for? Come. And so, Jesus, we do come to you now. You know those who are here, that in your sovereignty and your providence, you brought them here today to hear your word. So I pray that you would impress it more and more upon their hearts. Draw sinners to you, maybe even for the first time today, Jesus, by your spirit. Thank you for this free invitation to come and eat and drink because you've paid for everything. All we have to do is believe. Help us, Jesus, not to be lured by the things of the world that promise satisfaction. We know they can't deliver. Help us to go to you, our exceeding joy, and be satisfied. Help us to drink and drink and drink in your goodness, drink in your promises, drink in your grace, drink in your mercy, and come up for air occasionally and just say, ah, This is so good because that will bring you honor and that will bring you glory and that's what we want to do. Thank you for being such a kind, welcoming, caring, generous God. In your name we pray, amen.